Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. For today's episode, we are looking at the readings that you would have for Easter evening or Easter Monday. In fairness, I don't know a lot of congregations that would meet for these kinds of times, but there are readings for the various days throughout the week that follows Easter. So again, these could be used Sunday evening or on any time of Monday, and the text does not change from year A to year B to year C. It's the same for all three years of the three-year lectionary readings. Now, in saying that, there's a lot of options. The Old Testament can be read from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, or from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, C, through verse 3. The epistle text can come from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. We won't spend a lot of time arguing about how that's a not an epistle. The, the book of Acts is not one of Paul's letters. Anyway, or the epistle of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6b through 8. And then the gospel reading, now that one, that one's Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35, and optionally, also verses 36 to 49. For the show today, new information on those two Old Testament readings and those two epistle texts, I'm going to pull forward the old episode on Luke 24, because that is our gospel reading in Easter of year A, the third Sunday, and the third Sunday of Easter in year B as well. Year A, it's verses 13 to 35, and year B, it's verses 36 to 49. So today's episode will be a little longer because those are both roughly 20-minute clips. So I'll, I'll use those again. And just to point out, this is a common text. I mean, Easter evening, A, B, and C, the one year covers verses 13 to 35 instead of all 40, all the way to 49. Easter 3 in both A and B, we talked about already. Easter Tuesday in the one year as well as A, B, and C is going to be 36 to 49. Easter Day in year C will pull in verses 1 to 12, and then Ascension in the one year lectionary or in A, B, or C, all four of those, will cover verses 44 to 53, which again focus on the resurrection of Jesus. A common theme for the Old Testament and epistle readings, once we really get digging into them, is going to be that they're largely absent from the lectionary. So whereas the Luke one and its context show up all over the place, it's not the same for the rest of these. So Exodus chapter 15, uh, maybe a little different, but Daniel, Acts, and 1 Corinthians 5, definitely. So let's look at Exodus chapter 15 first. It's verses 1 through 18. This is the aftermath of crossing the Red Sea. So Israel, 430 years in the land of Egypt, many of those as slaves, and God has heard their cries, their pleas for his deliverance, and he has sent Moses to deliver them. He's brought about ten mighty works, the ten plagues upon the land of Egypt, that have finally broken Pharaoh's reluctance, hesitance, to let the people go. Also, some of the Egyptians are convinced of the faith and go with them. 
and as Israel leaves as they're wandering about the wilderness already, Pharaoh changes his mind again and he gives chase with his army. God parts the Red Sea, dry ground underneath, and allows Israel to pass over unharmed. And once Israel is through, and Pharaoh's army then gives chase and they're in the Red Sea, trying to cross it too, God closes it and destroys them. Chapter 15, again, is the aftermath of that, as Moses gathers the people together and they sing a song to Yahweh, praising him. Our text is that song of rejoicing. And because of that, it will read as one long paragraph. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Yahweh, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. I really wanted to say amen at the end of that line, fitting for our normal style of prayer. And we do sing amen in our, some of our hymns as well. So that's the song. It's really got a twofold theme to it, that the Lord defeats his enemies, and you could even say his enemies have no chance. And also, that the Lord rescues his people. And yes, those are technically the same thing when you think about it. He saves his people from those who oppose him, because those who oppose him are going to oppose his people, just as Jesus talks in John 15 about how the world will hate his disciples because the world hates him. A disciple is not above his teacher. Makes sense. And so Moses and the people of God, they praise the Lord for the Exodus triumph. 
They have seen what the Lord has done. He has taken what could have been the world's superpower at the time. He has taken this great army and he has decimated them in one single swoop, one strike, and it's over. And not a single one of his people have been harmed. That's power, without a doubt. That's might. This does remind me of Revelation. Uh, A lot of people fear the book of Revelation. There's no need for the Christian to do so. In fact, it was written for the opposite purpose. The book was written to give comfort to Christians who were living in terror and persecution. Under constant threat of possible death for their faith at the hands of the Romans, John writes to them, a little encoded, and I don't mean that like there's secret things to try and track down and find, but it's symbolic in part to defend them, so that if a Roman soldier who already has every reason to harm them under Roman law, if he finds them and finds the scroll in their hand, he's not going to open up and read, oh, Christians think Rome is the enemy. That gives him even more reason to harm them. And so John doesn't write that way. He writes about the enemy being Babylon, a nation that's been destroyed long ago. It's just a reference to Rome, but without using the name. Uh, Lots of symbolism in the book for that kind of a reason. Anyway, Revelation 16, 19, and 20. Threefold picture of the final war, the battle at the end, as Satan musters any troops and forces he can to conquer God in one final last-ditch effort. And yet, in all three places, if you look at it, even though he musters his troops, all this time is, is given to the building up to this battle, the battle never happens. There isn't one. God simply wins. Chapter 16, he speaks, he says, it is done, and the devil is undone just like that. God is powerful. He is all-powerful, omnipotent, the word that we would use. And so Moses praising the Lord for his strength. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He fights for me and I will sing about him. He has become my salvation. Yeah, they've watched the Lord save them, deliver them from their slavery. Just as we know how Christ has delivered us from our slavery to sin and death. My father's God, so a reference to the forefathers before them, that this is a promise, really, when you think of it that way. God has promised to look after them, and he remains their God. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Verse 3. That really begs the question for us as the church today, is this how we see him? And either way, either of those phrases, that Yahweh is a man of war, how do you think of God? Right, we have this, I'm going to say it, this feminized version of God. When we picture Jesus, most Christians only see the Jesus who, you know, is a kind, smiling face with the sheep on his shoulders carrying them to safety. Yes, that is God, but that is not the only piece of God's character. He is so much more. And that includes other scenes of Jesus in the New Testament. That he made a whip and he flipped over tables in the temple and he drove out the thieves that were there. 
Can you imagine Jesus doing that with like a, just a cute little smile on his face and everything's happy-go-lucky and he's just cracking his whip and throwing things around? That's not the picture of God, right? He is a man of war. He is fighting against Satan. He is fighting against the demons. He is fighting against the world for you. Thanks be to God. And he has done it. He is victorious. Also, Yahweh is his name. That goes back to Exodus 3, when Yahweh gave his name, by which we are to call him to his people, to Moses at the burning bush. And for centuries, the church has forgotten, forgotten his name. Now, in fairness, even though the name Yahweh is arguably the most used word in all of the Old Testament, the only words that appear more often are English words like he and is, that kind of stuff. Yahweh, 7,000-ish times. I think it's like 6,900-something. Anyway, once you get to the New Testament, never again. Instantly stops. Because in Matthew chapter 1, the angel tells the holy couple, you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. For this reason, I know some pastors who like to go back to the Old Testament and instead of Yahweh, they read Jesus. I, I don't know that I'm there personally, but it's better than just saying the Lord because that's definitely not what the Hebrew says. This is the divine name. This is the name God gave us to call him. So Jesus is far better than the Lord. If you want to read it that way, give it a shot. I've heard it's particularly helpful in the Psalms. Anyway. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, and that is an ancient word for army, cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk. His best men, his best soldiers, defeated, just like that. Went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power, shatters the enemy. The right hand is the fighting arm. And a hand for them is from the elbow to the fingertips. It's the arm that you would draw your sword with, that you would fight with. So God fighting for them. Glorious power that shatters the enemy. You overthrow your, ma- your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them. They've just seen it. Indeed. At the blast of your nostrils, so the wind that came credited there, the waters piled up stood in a heap. It's still hard to envision that. Uh, A tunnel carved right through the sea. Water, walls of water on either side, and they can walk across on dry ground. Verse 9 is the enemy's boast. It is their gloating. It is their pride. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My hand shall destroy. I cut it short, but you see the picture. This is man. This is our rebellion against the Lord, to think that we are in control, that we are the ones who do everything. Scripture often speaks the exact opposite, that God is the one who does all things. And in this battle between two forces, it's not even close. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? 
If you're listening to the podcast and your name is Michael, if you didn't know it, your name means who is like God. And so verse 11 starts that way, who is like. It doesn't quite say Michael in Hebrew because Ale ending is the name God, the word God. But the same structure here. There is no one who is like the Lord, and there are no other gods. None who can save. That's what the point of the ten plagues was in the book of Exodus in the first place, that Egypt trusted in these false gods, and God showed they can't save. But there is a God who can save. So here, watch his people, Israel, unscathed, unharmed, while your gods fail to act. He saves, and there is no other. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, loyalty, lots of ways to translate that little phrase. This is how God cares. This is what he does. And he does it for his people, and he has redeemed them. He has bought them back for himself. This continues forward into the Gospels in the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Redeemer who in his steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, and loyalty has rescued, redeemed us. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. In this case, that seems to simply be a reference to himself, that God is the holy abode, and he has brought us to him. And we would say that too in the New Testament era, that the Lord brings us to himself. Paradise, it's what our hope is. Our hope is not just that we get to live forever. Living forever apart from God isn't life. That's actually hell. Our hope isn't even in the new heaven and the new earth, in the paradise. Our hope is that we get to be with God. That's our hope. That's what's good. And we get to be there because he has promised. John 14. The peoples have heard they tremble. These next few verses about how The enemy nations around them have seen the works of God, and they're terrified. Philistia is on the west side. It is a common enemy, as they will border the Mediterranean Sea. Edom is south of the Salt Sea. Moab is east of the Salt Sea. Canaan, that's the inhabitants of the Promised Land. They're all afraid. And really, verse 15, the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. That's how Rahab says it. So you might remember Rahab from Joshua chapter 2. She hides a couple of the spies. They promise her that she and her family will be spared when they come in and destroy Jericho, when the Israelites come. This is what she says to them. Verse 8 through 10 of Joshua 2. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh... Notice she says the divine name. Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. See that? Exactly what Moses has said here in this song. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as our as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. 
All right, I tacked on verse 11 there as well. It seemed fitting. Verse 17 here of chapter 15 of Exodus. You will bring them in, a reference to the promised land, the land of Canaan where Rahab was living. Plant them on your own mountain, which eventually here is a reference to the city of Jerusalem, the place where indeed God would build his sanctuary, his temple. He's giving them a land, a kingdom, his kingdom. Verse 18, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Truly, indeed, amen to that. He is king and Jesus is king. He sits enthroned in the heavens forevermore. And that is the end of the song. And just after this, Miriam will end up leading the women in song also. Our other option for an Old Testament text for Easter evening or Monday is from Daniel chapter 12, and it's verses 1c, so you really break up that verse, 1c through verse 3. So it's a short little one. And to give you the context here, because we don't see much of the book of Daniel in the three-year lectionary, we get parts. So it's 12 chapters long. We have parts of chapters 3, 6, and 7. And here now, for chapter 12, although... Most churches don't ever see this reading because they don't tend to meet on these days. So chapter 3 is the account of the fiery furnace for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are known better by their Babylonian names rather than their Hebrew names, which were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Chapter 6, where Daniel's cast into the lion's den, he's known better by his Hebrew name than he is by his Babylonian given name by the king, which is Belteshazzar. And then a bit of chapter 7, which is a a vision that is being given to Daniel. And there's certainly Messiah written into that. So Daniel as a whole, Daniel is a, a Jewish boy who's kidnapped, taken hostage by King Nebuchadnezzar, and then trained in Babylonian ways and brought into the Babylonian court, and he will serve under, if I'm remembering correctly, six different kings in his lifetime, including bridging entirely different kingdoms, as Persia will come in and destroy Babylon, and yet Persia's first king over the land will keep Daniel as a a servant to him in his court, that is King Cyrus of Persia. So, 600-ish B.C. up until the 530s B.C. is the length of time Daniel is living in Babylon. And chapters 1 through 6 go through that chronologically, moving from when he's just a boy until when he's near the end of his life serving under Cyrus. However, in chapters 7 through 12, we double back, and we see a series of four visions that God gives to Daniel. They also move chronologically, by the way. So chapters 10 through 12 is the fourth vision, and that will come to Daniel near the end as he is serving under Cyrus. The whole point of the book is that God is in control. It may not seem like it. It may seem like evil kings are doing evil things and that they're in control. But through it all, the Lord is in control. He establishes kingdoms. He puts on the throne whom he wants to put on the throne. And we may not always understand that. So Daniel is a servant to care for the people under these kings. 
Daniel chapter 10 through 12 is perhaps the most detailed prophecy in all of Scripture. It is given by Jesus Christ himself to Daniel at the Tigris River. And as Jesus is speaking, he gives the history, chapter 11, which isn't history yet for Daniel, it's future. He gives the history of what's about to happen over the next several centuries. And it's going to start with the kings of Persia, under whom Daniel currently serves. Then it's going to transition to the, the, the Greeks, who really take power next in that part of the world, specifically Alexander the Great. And once Alexander's power is broken, because he dies at a very early age, his kingdom is basically warred over by his four chief generals, split into four parts. Jesus doesn't follow all four of these. He's going to follow the king of the north, as he calls it, which is a reference to the Seleucid Empire, Syria, and so forth, and the king of the south, the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt, Ptolemy, and, and so forth. He's going to follow these two because right in the middle of them is where God's people live. And as these two kings are often in conflict and war with one another, God's people are affected. Daniel is receiving this vision in order to give comfort and hope to God's people in the midst of that suffering. And so it's for a later time. And the detail that Jesus gives throughout that section of what these kings will do to one another, and it's generational. It's going to go for a couple hundred years as these kings are frequently at war. They're easily called the Syrian Wars, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. And you see most of them recounted in this section. Can they be recounted? Prophesied, spoken of in advance by Jesus because he's God, because he knows all things. The last focus of these earthly kings is going to be chapter 11 in the 20s, verse 20, all the way up to 35. And it's a king named Antiochus IV. You can read about him in 1 Maccabees. He does terrible things as he attacks God's people in Jerusalem. He forbids basically all of their religious customs, circumcision, uh, temple worship, sacrifices, all that kind of thing. Any ancient scriptures found are burned. People who resist him are killed. Terrible persecution. Builds idols in the temple, sacrifices unclean animals like pigs in the temple, and so forth. But when we get to verse 36... It shifts. It shifts to the, the king of the end of time, which is a reference either to the man of lawlessness, if you want to see Paul's reference in the book of Thessalonians as a specific person, or it's a reference to the devil, if you want to see the man of lawlessness as a reference to Satan. I think a decent argument can be made either way. And that's the same as then the theme here at the start of chapter 12. Chapter 12 ends the vision in verses 1 through 4. And so here's our, our text. At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Salvation. 
prophecy given to Daniel is about salvation of what God will do for his people, that yes, they will endure dark and dangerous and difficult days. That is Antiochus IV in the 2nd century BC of 167 to 164. It is the Roman Empire, as Jesus talks about and uses the reference from Daniel, the abomination that causes desolation when he talks about Rome destroying Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. That's Matthew chapter 24 and 25. It is the whole book of Revelation which paints the suffering and the persecution of the church in the same way, reminding us that God is in control, reminding us that God has already won, reminding us that in the last, we will stand. We will stand, and not by our own doing, by his, because he is king, because he is mighty and wondrous, and because he has redeemed us. At that time, the end of the world, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. That is a reference to the book of life, which will contain the name of every faithful, every believing person, everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. The best description of this book of life is found in Revelation chapter 20, near the end of the chapter. Basically, consider it this way, that every single person has their own book that is kept before the Lord, and in it is every word, thought, deed, action that you have ever had, and technically will ever have. But we're looking at the day of judgment at this point, so ever had, right? At that point, we're done. We're standing before the Lord to be judged. And those who do not trust in Christ will be judged by their own book. They will have to give the judge, the holy judge, who cannot tolerate sin, they will have to give him an account for all of it. And it will end very poorly for them. However, for those whose trust is in Christ, there is another book, the book of life. For those whose names are found written in that book, they are not judged by their own book, they are judged by that one. I like to look at it as Christ's book. Just as we have a book, he has a book that contains everything he has ever thought, said, done. And we are his good works. He has created us. He has redeemed us. We are his. And because our names are in his book, our books have been destroyed. Our books will not be opened on that day because our sins have been forgiven and forgotten. That's a little Jeremiah 31, the promise from that chapter. Verse 2 is a bit of a troubler in English. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, and everlasting contempt. We would expect it in English to say all. All who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to life, some to death. But it doesn't. It says many, and that throws us. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 2. I think you'll find this to be useful. Isaiah 2, I'm just going to read 1 through 3. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, I'm just going to pause there. You're welcome to certainly keep reading the book of Isaiah. 
But notice those last lines. All the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come. See how Isaiah uses the words all and many interchangeably? It's not English. It's not not the, the clean way that we would like it to work. But that is a good Bible verse to kind of see that that happening in. So this is all. Everyone on the last day will be brought to judgment. Jesus talks this way, Matthew chapter 25, for example. And there is no life apart from Christ. Notice that everlasting life to some, everlasting contempt to others. For those who are in Christ, it's life. For those who aren't, it's not life. It's judgment. It's shame. It's not annihilation. It's not that they're gone. But they're thrown in that prison, that pit that never ends. They are separated from God just as they lived this life wanting. Right? That's what they wanted. They wanted nothing to do with God, and so he grants them that. To their shame. But to those who trust in him, there is life. And that's where verse 3 goes. Those who are wise, that is, those who have faith. And it's a reference back to chapter 11 during the ongoing conflict with Antiochus that there would be some wise ones who would keep keep the faith, that they would continue to share, they would continue to follow the customs that God had given them to do, even if it meant their lives, that they would be killed. Those who are wise, those who are faithful, will shine like the brightness of the sky above. We'll be in paradise and we will reflect the light of Christ as the moon reflects the sun today. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I think you can make an, a case, an argument either way here in verse 3, that these are two distinct things, or that it's the same and it's just emphatic. So many, those who turn many to righteousness, so those who share their faith, those who tell others of Jesus Christ, those who tell others of the salvation that we have, they will shine. We can read these things like rewards in paradise, but the reward is that we get to be there. I mean, that's the big thing. If there are different levels of rewards in paradise, okay, that's fine. Great, fantastic. I don't care. I just want to be there. And when we're there, there won't be any jealousy among us if there are different rewards. We won't care. We'll be with Christ. And this is good. This is better by far. So anyway, I said you could probably make the case that these are the same because the wise, those who are faithful, what has God given them to do? He's given them to share their faith. So those who turn many to righteousness, those who share their faith. I think I lean towards viewing these as just being emphatic, repeating the same thing, doubly over. But note, the book of Daniel ends with comfort and hope and promises of paradise. It goes on a little bit. There's a few verses yet in the chapter. It's a short one. It's only 13 verses long, but it ends in hope. That God's people will suffer much, but that they will be restored. And this is the life of the Christian to this day. Second Timothy chapter 3. That we have the promise from the Lord himself in verse 12. That all, de- all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that evil will go from bad to worse. But Christ is already victorious. Our enemy has already been defeated. And... The day will come when we will be brought into paradise forevermore. 
All right, we move to our epistle text, and again, we have two options, Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 43, or 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6b through 8. So here's Acts 10, and we never get the context around this one either. This is the aftermath of Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10, where he sees the blanket descend or the sheet descend from heaven with the animals on it, and God tells him to arise, kill, and eat. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So again, Peter has had the vision, and the point of the vision is not just about meat. It's not about unclean and clean animals per se, although it does convey that message, and so does Mark 7. Jesus has declared all foods clean, you can read there. But Peter recognizes that it's not just about meat or animals, it's about people too. Not for the sake of eating, right? What God has called clean is clean. The Jewish people viewed Gentiles as unclean. They viewed their homes as unclean. And they would not go into the home of a Gentile. And Peter, having had this vision, then has a knock at the door. And it's servants who have come to bring him to a Roman centurion's house. Cornelius, centurion of the Italian cohort, as verse 1 declares. And Peter goes, and this is the message he preaches to Cornelius and his household. In the house... Because Peter recognizes what God has called clean, he cannot call unclean. It's not just about food. It's about people, too. The message of the gospel is not just for the Jews. But it is for, verse 35, every nation. Truly, I understand, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, not just King of the Jews. He is that, but he's so much more. He has other sheep that are not of this fold. He must call them that they may be part of his sheepfold also. That's the Good Shepherd, John 10 language. Isaiah 49, that it was too light a thing for him to be the Savior of Jacob, but that God would make him the Savior of all nations to the end of the earth.
Jesus in Acts 1, as he sends the disciples out, says that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. It's all over scripture. But the disciples had to learn it because they had originally thought the Messiah would redeem Israel. He would set them up as an earthly nation again, better than the rest. They wanted a worldly kingdom, and Jesus doesn't have a worldly kingdom. As he tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. We are his holy people. We are his holy nation. First Peter 2 even uses that kind of language. So he's gone to preach good news of peace through Jesus Christ. That is that we have been reconciled to God. There is no more war between God and man. We are redeemed, rescued, saved. We have peace. And so as Peter talks to this house, he tells them that they've already seen it. They know the stories. They've heard of what this Jesus has done throughout Judea. Rome's in charge. It's a Roman province all the way up in Galilee by the Sea of Galilee. And then John baptized him. And Jesus anointed now with the Holy Spirit and power, which certainly seems to be a reference to his baptism in this case. Anointed, by the way, is what Christ means. It's the Greek word for anointed one. It's also Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for anointed one. This Jesus, he did all these miracles, which the Romans would have heard about. Without a doubt, you can imagine Roman soldiers gossiping together. Roman families talking about this man. And we see it. This isn't the first Roman centurion to interact with the faith in the New Testament. You remember the one who came to Jesus because his servant was sick at home? And Jesus, offering to go with him, and the centurion says that he's not even worthy to have him come into his home, but just give the order and it'll be done? And Jesus' response is roughly that he hasn't seen such faith even in all of Israel. And the centurion's servant is healed from that very moment. The Romans knew what was going on, and some of them come to faith. It's not a nationality thing anymore. It's not a pitting of different groups or nationalities against each other. Ephesians 2, Jesus has torn down the dividing walls of hostility. A person on the other side of the planet who looks nothing like me but trusts in Jesus as Savior is my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ. I could have a child, and I pray this doesn't happen. I could have a child who grows up and abandons the faith, and that person on the other side of the world is more family to me than the child that came from my own flesh. It's not about blood anymore. <laughs> okay, it's not about our blood anymore. It's about his. And we are his. We are his body. We are members of a new family. And may the Lord, may the Lord protect our children from the temptations of this world. May the Lord bring them up soundly and safely in the faith, the one true faith unto life everlasting. Amen. He healed those who were oppressed by the devil. Peter acknowledging who the real enemy is. Here you have the Jews and the Romans. They've seen each other as enemies. 
The Jews give Romans all kinds of trouble, and the Jews hate the Romans for oppressing them. Who's the true enemy? It's not Peter and Cornelius. They're going to be brothers here in just a moment. It's Satan. And Peter's preaching here acknowledges that. God was with him, in him, through him. We are witnesses of all that he did. That witness idea is important. And this is what we have been called to be. The Greek word here is martyrs, by the way. Martyria, witness, testimony in Greek, becomes our English word martyr because so many of these martyrs of Christ are killed for their faith. We are martyrs of all that he did. And we are called to do the same, whether it leads to death or not. We are called to do the same, witness to what he's done. Like Moses singing that song, witness to what he's done to one another and to the world around us. Encourage each other's faith, share the faith. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Crucifixion. The Roman centurion would have known that practice full well. Cornelius may have even presided over crucifixions, or even before being a centurion, may have been the guy with the nails and the pounding. But God raised him on the third day. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. The resurrection. Christ is risen. He lives. This is such good news. Because he lives, we live. And he appeared after the resurrection. So again, witnesses. Peter witnessed not just what Jesus did, his miracles. He also witnessed the resurrection. He saw the risen Christ. He ate with him. He drank with him. You can read those accounts. Like, for example, at the end of John's Gospel. He commanded us to preach to the people. Testify he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead, which is something we speak in our creeds when we recite those together. He commanded us to preach. That's Matthew 28. That's Acts chapter 1. And to testify about him and who he is. That he is judge. That's Matthew 25. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. If you want a couple of things to look up on that, Isaiah chapter 53, and I'll take you to Daniel again today, Daniel chapter 9. So here's Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, as well as verse 11, 12. This is part of one of the servant songs in Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12, about the suffering of the Christ. But here, uh, 5 and 6, and then 11 and 12. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Skipping down to 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 
because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Beautiful prophecy of Christ and his crucifixion and how he would bear all the sins of this world upon himself that we don't have to anymore, that we have been rescued, redeemed, and saved. And again, Daniel chapter 9, this time it would be verse 24 of that text. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah 31 would be another place you could turn. Forgiveness of sins is in the Old Testament. And to say all the prophets, that's I'm going to refer to most of the Old Testament. They divided it in their mind into the law and the prophets. So you have the books of Moses, pretty much the rest um, at that point. But this is what the scriptures bear witness to. This is our gospel text of Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, as Jesus will open up the Old Testament and show them how it all pointed to him. We have forgiveness of sins through his name, which is what the angel said. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. After Peter's sermon here, the Holy Spirit falls upon them in the house. Actually, as he's still preaching, uh, this is what the next verses will say, the Holy Spirit falls on them. The believers who were with Peter were amazed to see Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. So they too now understand the purpose of that vision given to Peter. And then Peter will command that house to be baptized. And they are. In the name of Jesus. And our last new text, so again, I'll, I'll bring forward the Luke episodes on Luke 24 for our gospel readings before we're done. But for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6b through verse 8. This is all we ever see of 1 Corinthians 5 in the lectionary, and you come in with a reference to sin, and if you don't know the context, you don't know what's going on here. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 11. What you put into your bread when you're making the dough so that the bread rises, it gets puffier, it becomes bigger. You don't have to put much in, do you? You put just a little in, you stir it around, you mix it in there, and there it goes. The whole loaf is leavened. That's the danger. That is the danger of sin left unchecked, that if we let sin exist in our congregation, it infects. That is not to say that we can somehow purify our churches and be free from sin. That's not the point. The picture is unrepented sin. If there is somebody among us who has has committed sin and is ongoingly sinning and we don't do anything about it, that's the danger. And that's the context in 1 Corinthians 5. There is a man who has taken his father's wife and is sleeping with her. Even the Romans think that it's shameful. And yet, they're letting him do it. They haven't even told him so much as anything about it being wrong. They're letting it go. 
They're tolerating him. They're trying to be peaceable with him. They're whatever you want to call it, right? This is what our world does today. We can't confront them on their sin. They'll get mad and they'll leave. What does Peter say right before this verse? Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Excommunicate him. Excommunication, by the way, is not to be done out of spite. It's not to be done out of hatred. We excommunicate, that is, we remove from the community. Cut off is the Old Testament language. You cut them off. They're removed. We cut them off for the sake of repentance. Matthew 18, go and show your neighbor's fault. If he listens, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, bring along one or two others that every matter may be established between two or three witnesses. They didn't witness the original sin he did against you, but they're witnessing his unrepentance. And then they bring that to the church, and if he doesn't listen to the church, you kick him out. You excommunicate him. You treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector, a Gentile or a tax collector. And it's a dangerous line Jesus uses because how did they treat those groups? They, they hated them. But that's not how Jesus is teaching his disciples how to treat those groups. Instead, he's teaching them to treat them with love and serve them and share the gospel with them. They're, they're not the church, but what are you supposed to do with those who aren't the church? Try to bring them in. Love them, serve them. Preach Christ to them. They need Jesus. And that's the picture of excommunication. They ought to have kicked this man out. Hand him over to the devil for a little bit of time. The devil will have his way with him. Let his sin have its way with him so that eventually he can recognize what's missing. You're letting him think he can have the good and the evil at the same time. You're letting him think that it's okay to come into God's house. He's just peachy. Everything is okay when he goes home and he's living in this corrupt evil. He cannot have both. It's not to say we don't sin. It's the unrepented sin that is the issue. And it runs the risk of endangering the whole congregation. Because might another man in the church see this and say, oh, it's okay for him. I guess I can do it. Is this not how cohabitation has overwhelmed the American church today? Is this not how other problems have seeped in and become just normal? Many of these end up being sexual, cohabitation, divorce, and so forth. That's not it. We can look at any of the Ten Commandments and come up with lists. Things that are prominent in American culture and we just... eh, We don't even bother with it anymore. This text speaks to us, but how can we how can we do it if we cut off the point? Do you not know? Let's read the text now. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Unrepentant sin is a risk to the entire church. 
cleanse it. Cleanse out the old leaven. Before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to remove anything leavening from their homes. No leavening agents were to remain. Now, their era was different than ours, but this would be like finding the yeast in the is it baking soda or baking powder, whatever. Taking those things, and they're gone. Get rid of them. This was the intent behind something like Mardi Gras, by the way, or Fat Tuesday, as some will call it, is before Lent, where you were supposed to fast from certain things. You would consume them all so that they're not in your house anymore. So lots of pastries were made that day, historically. Cleanse it. Remove the unrepentant sinner from the congregation. Because you are a new lump, do not let them destroy the new lump. Christ, our Passover lamb, Passover, Exodus chapter 12, the 10th plague, that God promises to deliver his people. They are to take a lamb, sacrifice it at twilight, take its blood, paint it on their doorposts, and when the Lord comes in the night to destroy the firstborn son in every house in Egypt, where he sees the blood, he will not enter. He passes over their homes. That's why we call it Passover. Jesus is that for us. We are covered in his blood, filled with his blood as we think of the Lord's Supper. He has passed over our sins. Where the Lord sees those who are in the blood of his Son, made white in the blood of Jesus, Revelation chapter 7, we've washed our robes. Isaiah 1, 18, our sins have been, though red like scarlet, have become white like wool. We've been made clean. Because Christ has been sacrificed, our sins have been forgiven, so let us celebrate the festival. And that doesn't have to be the Feast of Unleavened Bread, even though that's the context here. It's the church. It's the body of Christ gathering together because we don't celebrate the Passover meal anymore. We don't have to. We have the better thing. right? The, the Jewish people every year celebrate the Passover, going all the way back, although they weren't always faithful in keeping it. They were supposed to be. Every year, tell the story, eat the meal, We have the better story. We have the better feast. We have Christ's body and blood given for us. We don't have to do that Passover meal anymore because we have the new one in Christ. It's not to say we can't take a look at it and, and try to remember what they, they learned because that's Old Testament history. It's part of our faith history, but we have the better thing. The analogy I like to use with the kids in confirmation classes to teach on this idea. How many of you celebrate your 100th day of life in the womb? I've never had a kid say that they do. It's not marked in the calendar somewhere. They don't get a cake. They don't get presents. They celebrate their birthday. They have the better thing. Quite honestly, we can push that to baptism. We don't need to celebrate our, our worldly birthdays because we were still dead in our sins. Celebrate your baptism birthday. That's the day when you were born again, living in Christ forevermore. So Paul encourages this divided church to put behind them their evil ways. 
and to live in sincerity and truth, two words that I think we would probably parallel with each other, make synonymous with each other, to be sincere is to be truthful. And we know Jesus is the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life from John 14. Live in Christ. Be his. Let's celebrate the feast. A feast that never ends. Because we are his body. We are his bride. We are his church. He has redeemed us, forgiven us. But let us not... Let us not tolerate the unrepentant sin. That brother is at risk, or that sister is at risk. They are in that moment saying that their sin is more important than their salvation, and that is damnable. Let us remove them, not out of hatred, but out of love, that by missing the church, missing that community, they may recognize the need to repent. And if they repent, if they come back, welcome them back. Excommunication is a thing of love because we want them to see Christ. We want them to be in paradise with us. As we shift into our gospel text with Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35, we noted that between the first reading and then the epistle, it was the same preacher. Now, here from the first reading to the gospel, it's the same author. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote this book, the gospel according to Luke. This is one of the three synoptic gospels, same. It's very similar to Matthew and Mark. And our text today is the first resurrection appearance of Christ. The first time after he has risen from the grave that he appears to someone, according to Luke's gospel account. The women are at the tomb early in the chapter, uh, and they are greeted there by an angel who tells them that Christ has risen. Peter runs to the tomb and is amazed. But by Luke's account of things, this starting in verse 13, is the first time that he actually mentions it. Now, we're going to learn at the end of the text that Jesus had already appeared to somebody else as well, Peter, namely. But this is Luke's first mentioning. So it's worth it's just worth sharing that that picture here. This is this is important. And Luke is the only one that brings out this account. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I'm going to pause there. So that very day, the day of the resurrection, this is Easter Sunday. These two men are walking towards Emmaus. So they're going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is seven miles away. Um, It's northwest-west, if you want to use directional stuff, from Jerusalem. It's not quite halfway from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean Sea, if that helps you place it on a map. So it's worth your thinking about how long this walk is. Because of what Jesus does on this walk, he's going to unpack the Old Testament on this walk. He's going to share with them how the Old Testament scriptures point to him. And he's going to do it on a seven-mile walk. So if they're walking at three miles an hour, 
which is a a moderate clip, they would finish this walk in two hours and 20 minutes. 20 minutes a mile. I don't know that I could point you to everything about Jesus in the Old Testament in two hours and 20 minutes. I There's so much there. The entirety of Scripture points to Christ. So, how I would how I would love to have been there for this conversation. But we'll come back to that near the end of the text. Just keep that in mind. How long of a walk, how long of a conversation did they actually have? Jesus, um, in verse 15, uh, comes near them. He walks with them. But, verse 16, they don't recognize him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is God working. I don't know if we want to necessarily call it a miracle. I guess technically it is. It's God doing. I like to define a miracle as something God does outside of the way he's designed his creation to work. So a baby being born is not a miracle. Because that's how God designed it to work. But Jesus changing water into wine is a miracle. Because that's just not the way it was designed to work. So in that sense, I guess you could say this is a miracle. Their eyes should have recognized Jesus. That's how creation works. But they didn't. It was hidden from them. Verse 14, as they were talking about these things, what things? What were they talking about? That's all going to come back for us in the verses to come. But they were just reflecting on the events of Holy Week. Take verse 17 onward here. He said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So we get the beginning of their conversation. As God did with Adam in the garden, and we see him do throughout Scripture, God invites them into the conversation. Jesus knows the answer to his question. He knows what their conversation is about, He doesn't have to ask, but he is. He's opening the conversation up so he can speak the good news for them. We don't know much about Cleopas. Not necessarily. We don't truly know who this was today. I can tell you the early church tradition was that Cleopas was one and the same as Clopas, who is mentioned in 
John chapter 19, I believe it is. Um, I think it's John 19, verse 25. Clopas had a son named Simeon, who would later be the head of the Jerusalem church. So the early church held that Cleopas and Simeon are the two men here. So we don't know that, but it's worth mentioning, you know, first few hundred years after the resurrection, that's kind of who the thought was. Even the Jews know. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know? Even the Jews know. They knew. They were bringing their sick to be healed. This is the kind of stuff we were hearing about in Acts as Peter preached his sermon. You know the wonders that Jesus did. You know these things. And beyond that, now as we talk about Holy Week, are the only one to not, are you the only one who doesn't know about what happened on Thursday and Friday? And you don't know this? Everybody knew. This was a big deal, a very big deal. They thought this was the Savior. Huge implications. And they're going to mention that, too. Um, not just that he's a prophet mighty indeed, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's going back to Israel as a nation. Israel is God's holy chosen nation, which dates back to their flight from Egypt, really when God is their king for those first 400 years, and then they depose God and they ask for a king of their own, they get Saul, uh, and then you go down from David to Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam. Under his reign, the kingdom is split into two, Israel and Judah. A couple hundred years later, Israel, because of their faithlessness, they are destroyed by Assyria and carried off into exile. Judah as well, about 140 years later. I guess it's probably 135 years later. 722 and 587 BC. So Assyria conquered Israel. Babylon conquered Assyria. Persia conquered Babylon. Greece conquered Persia. Rome conquered Greece. Israel hasn't been a nation. They've been longing to be their own nation again. That's what they expected from Jesus. As he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that's the picture they have in mind. He is coming to finally overthrow the shackles of Rome and let us be our own nation again. We get glimpses of that throughout the New Testament, that that's what they were expecting, that's what they were hoping for. But that's not who Jesus came to be. He did not come to fight. At least not against worldly adversaries. He came to fight against sin, death, and the devil, and he did it for you. He did it for us. The world today still clings to this idea of a nation of Israel as being somehow scripturally important. And it's not. As Christians, we do care about the people who live in the land of Israel. They matter. God created them. He cares for them. We should care for them too. Love your neighbor. That includes all people throughout the world. But we don't have to cling to some hope of a nation of Israel. It doesn't matter if it's called Israel or whatever other name you want to call the land. 
there's no scriptural connection there any longer. The church is the one to whom the Lord has given his promise. But more than that, it has gone out to all people, as we heard again in the Acts text. Now, it's the third day, still verse 21, since this has happened. Christ has risen. They don't know this fully yet, but they, they've heard it. The women <laughs> amazed us. That would be quite a tale. And we learn in Luke 23, sorry, Luke 24, before our text here, that that's exactly what the disciples thought it was. They thought that the women were telling them a tale. They didn't believe it. And really, the women hadn't either. They went to the tomb. Why? Why did they go early in the morning? It was their first opportunity after the burial. Really, it was their first opportunity after Jesus' death on the cross to actually properly bury him and do the the ointments and spices and things to to preserve the body that they, they normally did. They didn't go because they thought Jesus was raised from the dead. They didn't trust in his promise that, that on the third day he would rise again. The disciples didn't believe it when they first heard it. So Cleopas sharing, you know, they said this to us. They spoke this good news to us. We were amazed. But they still don't get it. They still don't believe it. Word was traveling, though. Luke only records in this chapter that the women told the apostles, and yet Cleopas isn't an apostle, and he already knows. Word's getting around very same day. And this is a big deal. Christ's body is missing. An angel appeared to the women and told, told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. Verse 25, Jesus' response, we'll go through 27 as well. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A double whammy when he responds. Foolish and slow of heart are a couple of cutting insults. Um, foolishness is contrasted to wisdom, which the scriptures talk about Jesus as being wisdom. Um, slow of heart is very similar to hard of heart. It's not the same. Hard of heart is without faith. Slow of heart just means really weak in faith, perhaps here, but still painful. Painful speech. All that the prophets have spoken. Key word there probably is all. They believe some of it. You can find the resurrection in the prophets. You can find the forgiveness of sins in the prophets. You can find a new heaven and a new earth in the prophets. You can find these things that point us to Christ and paradise in the prophets. They didn't see it. And so now Jesus is going to unpack that for them. The necessity of his death, the necessity of his suffering, he's going to share with them over this seven-mile walk of two hours and 20 minutes or however long it took them. 
he's going to share with them how all of the Old Testament points to him. Again, best conversation ever. This is in the running. I mean, one of the greatest conversations ever to grace this earth. All scripture points to Jesus. Oh, how I wish I could hear that conversation in our digital age where we can record conversations and post them to YouTube or wherever. Facebook Live, this, this event, how incredible it was. And yet they don't recognize him. Even in all of this, they still can't see that this is Jesus. It's still being hidden from them. I'm going to read the whole last paragraph and then we'll unpack it. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Jesus acted. He pretended at the end of this walk that he was going to just keep going. He has no need to go anywhere. He's he doesn't need a place to sleep. He doesn't need to go to one city or village or another. He's continuing the work that he's been given by God to do. The Father the Father has sent him at this time to share this good news. And so that's exactly what he's going to do. And so he acted, pretended a little bit, and they got him to stay with them. It's dangerous at night. Verse 30, at table. It was just three days ago Jesus was at table with his disciples, taking bread, blessing it, and breaking it, and giving it to them. The Lord's Supper, Christ's body, given for you. And it is in this precise moment. Why this moment? I don't know that I can actually answer that question. It is in this precise moment, though, that Jesus reveals himself to them. And maybe that is the answer. It is in this moment, having been hidden from them up until this point, it is in the breaking of the bread that Jesus makes himself known to his disciples. While I don't know for certain, 100%, that that's the answer here, it sure speaks a great deal about our Lord's Supper today. It is in the breaking of the bread that God makes himself known to us. It is in the breaking of the bread, it is in the celebration of the Lord's Supper that Jesus, his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace are made known to you. I like that picture. May not be 100% what God was doing, you know, can't speak for God, but that's a beautiful image and a beautiful connection, even if it's not necessarily the why their eyes are open in that very moment. 
The sad thing for them, right as their eyes are open, they finally realize that it had been Jesus all that time. He disappears. He vanishes. Just as he shows up randomly inside the, the, the locked house, he vanishes from their house. Just gone. Instantly. Verse 33. So much for the walk. They had just spent all that time walking to Emmaus, sat down to eat some food. Now it's time to walk back to Jerusalem. We got to go share this good news. We don't even know that they finished the food. Doesn't sound like it. Maybe they took it with them. They found the eleven and those who'd gathered with them. So more than the eleven are gathered at this point. We got the apostles. Who aren't quite the apostles yet. We've got the disciples, the eleven disciples together. Plus some others, probably, again, that group of women who had been at the tomb. Now Cleopas and whoever the other disciple is who was with him. They're sharing that wonderful good news, that wonderful announcement that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. None of the accounts, none of the gospel accounts specifically mention that appearance to Simon on Easter Sunday, but Paul does. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, that Jesus appeared first to Cephas, which is another name for Peter. Uh, Peter means rock. Cephas means rock in another language. So it is mentioned. We do know it. You can just picture how the Christians started to share the good news with one another. I saw Jesus on the road today. Jesus appeared to me. Hey, Jesus, Jesus had breakfast with us, as you think of John's gospel. And they just keep sharing these things. And they become eyewitnesses together of the most momentous event in the history of creation. That God lives. Our gospel text together this weekend is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. Two paragraphs again. I will start with 36 to 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So, again, a little out of context here, what's going on? Who's being introduced to us right away as they were talking about these things? Who is they? Well, what we've had in Luke 24 already is the resurrection of Jesus. And then you've got the road to Emmaus, where Jesus speaks to Cleopas and the one other disciple as they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a seven-mile trip. And he explains to them how all the Old Testament pointed to himself, to, to the, the Christ who must suffer and rise again. 
They didn't recognize him until after he had broken bread and then left them. They then hurry back to Jerusalem to share this good news with the, the disciples, with the eleven. And they find the eleven, and as they get there, the eleven are already talking about the resurrection and how Jesus has already appeared to Simon, to Simon Peter. Enter verse 36 in our text for this weekend. As they were talking about these things, so the thirteen of them now, as best as we can tell from the, the context there, have gathered together and they're talking about the resurrection. And as they're talking about the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus appears and he stands right there in their midst and he says those words, peace to you. Those are great words. Uh, the, the idea that our sins are forgiven is there. The idea that we are reconciled to God the Father is there. Preached on this just last weekend here at my congregation, the idea that when Jesus says this, when he gives this peace, it is not, it's not a good night's rest, it's not quietness. You know, we talk about peace and quiet a lot. No, this, this peace is the end of war. It's a peace treaty signed between God and men and the very blood of Jesus himself. You are reconciled. To the Father. That's what this, this peace word means uh, when Jesus speaks peace. So he speaks that to them, but what's their response? They're startled. They're frightened. They think they see a spirit. Here they are, gathered together, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrected Jesus shows up, and they think he's a ghost. They still don't believe. Do you see that? They, they don't see this connection. They don't see the resurrection here, even though he is standing, risen, right there in front of them. And because they think he's a ghost, they're afraid. Just as you or I would be afraid if we saw a ghost among us. Why are you troubled? A good question. Why are they troubled? Why do they believe that this Jesus is a ghost, a spirit? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Another good question. Why don't you believe what Jesus has been teaching you? Now, in fairness, had we been there, we'd probably have been in the same exact thought process as the others. So don't don't get that negative view, that, that proudful view, prideful, that we are better than them somehow. We have all the gifts of Jesus, and yet we still sin. We know his resurrection is true. We know the promise of the resurrection that is to come, and yet we still reject him in our daily life and live for ourselves instead of serving others and, and serving him. So we should not be prideful, but rather remain humble and remember that we are but, but children, because it's the faith of a child. If you recall that text, we bring nothing to the table. So he invites them to see proof. See my hands and my feet. So the, the holes from the nails that would have pierced his hands. Hand there, a reference to the elbow, to the tip of the finger in that culture. So probably just below the wrist. 
my feet. Uh, the typical picture you see there of that is that Jesus' feet are overlapping and just one nail driven through the both of them. That it is I. Jesus offering them to touch and to see so that they may believe. A spirit does not have flesh. Right? That's one where we might say, I don't know, because that's just not a part of faith as we, we know it today. We don't, at least not in 21st century American culture, 20th century American culture either, something that we deal a lot with. And I think there's reasons for that. I think the devil's attack on a society is pinpointed to where that society is uh, we could go into that more, but we don't need to. So for now, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, it reminds me of the scene in the, the old movie Casper. Um, came out when I was a little, little kid. All the the uncles, Casper's uncles, are eating food. They're having a big feast, and it all just falls right through them to the floor because they don't have a body. They don't actually have the, the organs inside to digest the food and and, and whatnot, and so the spirit does not have flesh. So that's an interesting picture of that. So he has said this, now he shows them his hands, he shows them his feet. He invites them to touch him, to see. Verse 41 gives us a discombobulating phrase. While they still disbelieved for joy. In other words, they are they're so excited they can't believe it. That would be a, a modern way to phrase that, right? This is too good to be true. But it's also at the same time it's an oxymoron. Because the joy that we have is in Jesus. And if they're disbelieving, they don't have that joy. So it's, it's kind of an odd phrase when you think of it and try and unpack it a little bit. They disbelieve for joy, so they're still having trouble believing. And they're still amazed, they're still marveling. So that, that's an improvement from being frightened, though. Jesus offers them more proof. And it fits into that picture from Casper I just shared. Anything here to eat. And they give him fish and he eats it before them. So just as he had said that the spirit doesn't have flesh. Now he shows them that he can eat as well. Which is something that you can only do if you're here, if you're living. So Jesus has shown them himself. He has shown them the wounds from the crucifixion. He has allowed them to touch him. And now he has eaten with them all so that they might know that he is truly there, that he is risen from the dead. Second paragraph, verses 44 through 49. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 
you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So having eaten before them that piece of broiled fish, he speaks to them again some more. He reminds them of what he's taught them in the past. He reminds them of everything he's been saying, especially these last few months. He reminds them of their scriptures to think of the the law and the prophets, which is what they usually refer to the Old Testament as. But he throws in the Psalms as well, the Psalms being their hymnal. And really the Psalms are filled with a lot of a lot of this kind of stuff that gets quoted a bunch by the apostles as they preach in the book of Acts, for example. Then he opens, well, sorry, for, sorry, first it must be fulfilled. Everything written about me must be fulfilled. It's the same kind of sermon he preached to Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus just before. Now he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. They'd, again, done that for Cleopas and the other disciple. They were not able to see him for who he was until he gave them the ability to see him for who he was. And so it is here. Jesus must heal our spiritual blindness and deafness. We cannot come to Christ. We don't have the ability within us to do so. We are flawed. We are sinners. We are broken. We are not only dying, we are dead and Christ must heal us of that he must bring us to repentance he must bring us to faith and really in a way that's exactly what he's doing here with the disciples he is allowing them he is giving them the ability to truly come to know him and he's going to give them those gifts of forgiveness and life and salvation that he's been promising to them from before. Now, I was mentioning uh, in the Acts reading that this is tricky because the commentaries just don't pick up on this. So verse 46, he says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. But none of the commentaries talk about where it's actually written. So Jesus said, Thus it is written. You'd expect to be able to go back and find it. The study Bible does not have the cross-reference listed for that. Jesus has very specifically said these words. The trouble is they're not written yet by the time he says this. So he says this within days of his resurrection. And it isn't until... Well, days of his resurrection would be maybe 29 A.D., it's not going to be until closer to 50 A.D., a good two decades later that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing these things down. So Jesus says, thus it is written, before it's written. At least that specifically. And again, none of the commentaries pick up on this. So where can we go? Well, again, we got to remember what the whole section has been about, that all of Scripture actually does this. All of the law, all of the prophets is pointing to this reality starting in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. 
that the Lord would raise up someone to conquer that serpent for us, and that is Jesus. I, I invited you to read Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, as well as Psalm 22. Uh, when we were reading that Acts reading, I'm going to actually take you through a couple of verses of those. So here's from Psalm 22, verses 16 through 19. Now read the whole thing in context of Holy Week, but 16 through 19. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. That is the picture of a man being crucified and his garments being divided up amongst those who have crucified him. And we know that that's exactly what happens to Jesus on Good Friday, and not to the one who wrote the, the the hymn. I believe that one's David. It never happens to him. Old Testament points us to Christ. But verse 19 is a bit of a restoration. So as you get the crucifixion, you also get God helping his servant. Or a few verses from that Isaiah passage, from Isaiah 53, this is 5 through 10. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So that that text from Isaiah then has a very similar structure to the text from Psalm 22. The idea of the crucifixion showing up there first and then moving into that last verse, a hope. A hope of the resurrection that would come, that, that the Christ would suffer, that the Christ would rise. Those pictures are here. They're, they're throughout the Old Testament. You just you have to have the, the open mind to see, the mind that has been opened by the Lord to see them. So, the Christ will suffer, the Christ will rise from the dead, the that means he has to die. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So we have in his name, just like we had the healing of the lame beggar in chapter 3 of the book of Acts already. It's only in Jesus' name that forgiveness comes. There is no forgiveness outside of Christ whatsoever. There is no forgiveness outside of his church, outside of his kingdom. You won't find it anywhere else. 
It's even easy to see in the way our culture interacts and deals with one another. They don't speak forgiveness to each other. They hold grudges all over the place all the time. Or they, they sweep things under the rug and pretend that no problem exists, where problems very obviously do exist. There is no other God by which we are saved, no other name under heaven given by which we are to be saved. Only Jesus. So repentance for the forgiveness of sins, proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, right here, right where the disciples are at that moment where Jesus is speaking to them, the gospel is going to go out from that location onward. And as we know, that's what happens. So Luke writes this. This is going to end right before Luke gives the account of the ascension, which is the wrap-up of his, his book here. And then when he starts his sequel, The Acts of the Apostles, he begins that with the ascension before moving into Pentecost and the, the things that happen after. And so... Jesus is about to ascend, but before he does, he gives them that that task, that mission of the church, which is to proclaim his forgiveness to all nations. That's your job, as much as it is mine. Your pastor, in a sense, your pastor has a special call by the Lord to share that forgiveness with you as a servant of the church. But each and every single one of us is called by the Lord to be a to be his servant, and to share this good news. As we think about the community around us, I have no different calling to Lee's Summit than you do. If you're a member of my congregation, your calling to this community is the same as mine. We have the same purpose, the same function, that is to love our neighbor, to serve them, to share Christ with them, it is only in, inside the church that that relationship has, has a difference. Um, and, and that's only because you have called me to be the one who makes sure that that word of forgiveness is always being held before you. I mean, quite literally, you pay me to make sure that you always have access to that wondrous gift so that even if the devil seeks to take it away from you, you know it's going to be there, you know you can come to this church, you know you can receive that good news, you know you can hear it, you know it can be placed right onto your lips in the Lord's Supper. I'm here to make sure that you know that always, and that you receive that always. But we're called to go to the community around us and share this good news. You are witnesses of these things. Just as we saw with the Acts reading again, we see it here. Thus it is written, Here are what you here's what you've witnessed, O disciples of Jesus. The Christ suffering and rising and giving forgiveness to the world. You are witnesses of these things. Go tell others. Then he promises them. He is sending the Father's, well, the Father's own promise that they are going to receive power from on high. Stay here. Stay in Jerusalem. Stay in this place where they want to put you to death. Stay here until Pentecost. 
which at this point is less than two weeks away um, for the church. Well, historically, for the disciples in that moment. Pentecost is less than two weeks away because Jesus is about to ascend. Pentecost is ten days after he ascends. So if it's ten days later, 11, 12, 13, whatever, it's, it's close. Pentecost is not far off. It's a little farther off for us on the calendar right now because this is for the third Sunday of Easter. We still have four more Sundays of Easter to come before we get to Pentecost, so five weeks out yet. But on Pentecost, the day the church is born, and the apostles receive the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and they preach that good news in a miraculous way, quite literally, a miraculous way, one that perhaps has never happened again in the history of the Lord's Church. Yeah.